I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God, greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. <clears throat> Those are the first eight verses of Psalm 89, which the first 18 verses of which are appointed as the psalm for today, Monday, February the 14th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. It's Valentine's Day, so if that means something for you, then I hope you have a great Valentine's Day. <laughs> um, we're continuing in our look in the Messianic prophecies of Isaiah in chapter 63, verses 1 to 6. We're over in 1 Timothy. Why we went from 2 Timothy to 1 Timothy, I have no idea. We're in 1 Timothy 1, verses 1 to 17, and the gospel is Mark 11, verses 1 to 11. So we we get now... Uh, the beginning of the coming of the Lord in judgment. And, and as I said, there's two horizons always for us here in the um, in the prophetic word. There is the short-term fulfillment of the word, which will be the return of the peoples from their exile in Babylon back to the land. And then there's a longer-term horizon for the prophetic word, which is the fullness of those things, because whatever happens is is temporary in the short term. Um, sort of like the raising of Lazarus from the dead, that wasn't a resurrection, it was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. He died again. And so that that's the, the short-term thing Jesus did for Lazarus, is he brought him back from the dead. But that was a sign that had to do with the resurrection of the dead. And so the, the raising of the dead shows Jesus' power, and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead shows his righteousness and God's power in all events. And so the, the Lazarus horizon now has changed. He's been raised from the dead, but later he will be resurrected from the dead, and he knows that he will be resurrected from the dead because the power of the one who raised him from the dead. <clears throat> so it begins with the this judgment here begins with who is this who comes from Edom, which means red, in crimsoned garments from Basra. Edom is another word for Esau. It's very closely related to the name Adam, Adam, uh, which is from the dust. But <clears throat> Edom means red, and so we get that he's red, who comes from red, and who is in crimson garments from Basra. He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? There's an expectation for the messianic coming that, that he will come, indeed, in purple garments, purple being the color of royalty, but also it bespeaks that judgment is required to bring about the next world, to bring about what the world, life of the world to come, judgment, and that will mean death. So the question is, why is your apparel red and your garments like those who tread in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. This is the Lord speaking. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. 
for the day of vengeance was in my heart and in my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. And so these are God's words to the people that said, when I came, there was no one who was willing to go with me in this, in this judgment. And so I ended up doing it by myself. Um, so he says, there was no one to uphold, so my own arm brought me salvation. I think that goes back to the first battle that the Israelites had, having come out of Egypt, that they had to fight, which was against the Amalekites. And if you remember, Moses prayed during the battle, and if his arms stayed up, then the fighting went well for the Israelites. And if they didn't, then they, they began to lag in the battle. And so Joshua and Caleb came and held his arms in place while the battle raged in order that at the end they would emerge victorious. And here he said, there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And that the lifeblood is used two different times uh, in this. And so there, when you when you think about the dietary laws of Judaism and also in Christianity, because the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 made it clear that you're not supposed to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols or food with the blood still in it, which was, had been a regulation from the time of Noah when um, animals were given as uh, potential food to human beings for the first time, that, that, they, that they had to drain the lifeblood first, and so it is today. There's halakhic ways, ways according to the law that are prescribed in halakha to, um, to kill the animal and make sure that, that this commandment is kept, that the, the blood goes out. Because what God has said is that the life is in the blood of the animal. And so you don't want to mix two kinds of life. You don't want to mix animal blood and human blood. But there... There's a, there's a, not a relaxation, but there's a provision, let's say, for the, there's going to be some blood left in the capillaries in the meat. So the, that amount of blood is um, permissible because that is not enough blood to sustain the life of the animal. And so the lifeblood is the amount of blood necessary to sustain the life of the animal, whether it's an animal or a person. So the lifeblood that he refers to in two different places here, the lifeblood spattered on my garments and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth would, would speak of death. So the, the death of these who are um, judged in this coming of the Lord are the ones that are, that are in there. And you see this same idea, completely the same idea in Revelation 19, um, where it says when, when this one on the white horse comes, it says, he will um, has a sharp sword from his mouth with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And so what Isaiah saw was the second coming, that coming in judgment that I just read for you in the uh, Revelation 19. In the gospel, remember yesterday what had happened was that he had healed or not yesterday, but um, Saturday, what had happened was Jesus had healed blind Bartimaeus as he's going to Jerusalem for the final time. And so now they've left there and they moved on. When they, were, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, which is where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. 
untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, what are you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. So they've, they've been told just to go find this colt and to bring it to Jesus. And, and he says, and if anybody asks, it's going to be fine. Just tell them who it's for. Tell them it's for the Lord, which presumes that the person to whom that colt belongs knows who the Lord is in that reference. And they went away and found a colt, tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? I mean, it it would have looked like they were stealing it, certainly. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. It sounds a little bit like Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? These are not the droids you're looking for. Um, But that's not what's going on here. It's just that Jesus is prophetically speaking about what will happen. He's prophetically given them the response that will be necessary to, to enable them to take this colt. Because he sees it, he knows it, he knows what will happen, and he foretells what will happen in order for this to happen. <clears throat> and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, sort of as a saddle, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before, they're greeting a king, is what this is. Um, the word is parousia, which is the visit of a king. And so what happened, what would happen then and what would happen now is elaborate preparation would come, and there would be thanksgiving for the king. And so they would want to greet him as loyal subjects, and they would want to proclaim him in the way that they are. Now, in first century Jerusalem, you have to remember that a king could upset an apple cart if it's a Jewish king, because they serve Rome. (laughs) They have kings over them. They have an emperor over them. They have a governor over them. And so to proclaim a new king in this way, in the way that they would greet a Roman king coming into town, it is uh, potentially a game changer. If these people are now going to go out after another king, and Herod saw that, it, when, when the Magi came and proclaimed that the Jewish king had been born, what did he do? He went out and tried to kill them all. Well, Herod, remember, was a Jew. And so what he would have wanted to do would, would be to prevent that Jewish king from coming in because he was quite happy in his position under the emperor. So he would have seen it as a challenge, and the the Jews know that this has the potential to upset the tenuous apple cart existence that they have with the Romans, which have allowed them to keep their own power in their own positions. So now, here they come, and they're they're proclaiming Jesus in, in word and deed to be the king. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And so he comes into town in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that he'll come in on a donkey. And so Jesus comes in on a donkey, which is a, um, an animal that bespeaks peace. So this is not that coming that Isaiah saw. If his people will declare him and accept him and receive him as their king, then the Messianic kingdom could have begun 2,000 years ago, but they're going to reject him in this. And so the Messianic kingdom that would have come in peace, as Jesus does as he comes into town this day, is now supplanted by when he comes on the white horse in judgment and treads the winepress, just as we just read. So the, the compromise, not the compromise, but the, the, there was a choice to be made here this day, and that is to accept him and seat him on the throne, 
or reject him. And so some, there, there was not unanimity, let's say, because the Pharisees, the scribes, and the others are, don't believe. And so you can't receive him as king if your leaders don't receive him as king. In the epistle lesson today, it's just 1 Timothy 1, 1 to 17, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Typical Pauline beginning to, to a letter. He authenticates himself. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. And then to whom? And then the greeting, grace, mercy, and peace. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that's by faith. And so there certainly, if you've ever read um, Talmud, if you've ever read Midrash, then, then what you would see is, is that there were these, there were myths and genealogies that matter greatly. And they, they catch people up in these and, and it becomes, they're no longer attached to the word of God. And the, I, I follow a guy and have for years now and, and listen to all of his teaching. His, his name is Rabbi David Foreman. Um, and Rabbi Foreman started the ministry and it's called Aleph Beta. So it's alephbeta.org, A-L-E-P-H-B-E-T-A.org. It's one of my favorite Jewish rabbinic teaching sites. So what he did when he founded this, what he realized was people knew the stories of the Talmud. They knew those, those extra biblical stories, but they honestly had no earthly idea that those things were not in the Torah because everybody was just studying Talmud. And so they're studying that part only. And so he started this. It was, I think it was called the Hofberger Center for Torah Studies or something like that when I first started following him. But that's the point was that he wanted to get away from teaching all that stuff and, and go back to the, to the inspired Word of God. Now, if you listen to my recording a couple of weeks ago about, well, about a month and a half ago now on the Talmud, then, then you'll see what I mean by that a little bit of it at least. So... He says, don't waste your time with all this other stuff. Don't, don't allow people to bring other doctrine in that comes in from other sources other than the Word of God written and the Word of God in Jesus and what I have given to you. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. All three of those things are really important in our lives. We need to have a pure heart, one that's, that's only there to hear the Word of God, whether that Word speaks against me or for me at any given moment. That's a pure heart. The ability to let the Word of God dwell in you richly, to convict you of sin, but to raise you up in who you truly are. That's a pure heart, a good conscience, one that's not stained by sin, one that's not there by ambi- for ambitious purposes. We're there to do the one thing that we're given to do because we love the Word of God both written and in Jesus Christ and by faith, he says. <clears throat> uh, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And that's important that, that we know that we're not ambitious to be teachers. We want to impart the knowledge that we've been given. So do we want to be seen as something? 
or do we just have a burning in our hearts for the Word of God that we need to, to do this teaching? He said, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but the lawless and the disobedient, in other words, for those ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. I mean, that's quite a list. And Paul is very clear about the things that he's talking about here. And he's talking about those who practice these things. That's an important thing to remember in our day, because we can get caught up in, in um, what somebody says. I mean, there's a guy, Wesley Hill, who, who at least at one point taught at the seminary I went to, um, not when I was there, but, but Wesley Hill identifies as a gay man who is a celibate gay man. And so he, he recognizes it's sinful, and he struggles with it and doesn't practice that. He denies himself in those situations. And so what, what he, Paul is enjoining against here is to understand the purpose of the law. The law is to show you the right way to live. If you're one of these people, then what you need to do is deny yourself. In any of those events, you need to deny yourself. You need to understand where you're, um, who you're supposed to be, and that's what the point of the law is. It's written for the ungodly, for sinners. And in Romans, Paul's very clear about who is in that class of people, and that's everybody, <laughs> Jews and non-Jews alike. So it's important to him— that, that we maintain the gospel, that we not strip the law out and take it out of uh, our teaching in our churches. We haven't become antinomians, those who don't have the law, those who are against the law, those who deny the law. We can't be any of those people. The law continues to tell us who we should be by telling us what we shouldn't do, but then also in other cases telling us exactly what we should do. In situations, and so it's important that we know the purpose of the law, and the Spirit then will lead us into conformity with the law. It's not going to lead us out of conformity with the law. Jesus never once reduced the law, made it uh, an easier thing to keep. He always raised the bar on the law. You know, you you think you haven't committed adultery because you haven't actually had sex with a woman who's not your wife. No, I'm telling you, if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you've actually committed that sin. So Jesus is saying that righteousness is a whole lot more than just what we do, you know, what is publicly known, at least, about what we do. Paul goes on here to say, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, according, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. I mean, Paul is—not too many people would say that about themselves. They would find some ways of, of lightening the blow. He wouldn't say, well, I used to be a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. You know, most of us would come up with some excuse for why we've done what we did. He said, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. He didn't believe in Jesus. And, and so what did Jesus pray from the cross? And his prayer was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that's what Paul says here is, I was acting in ignorance. You know, I, I was acting as a natural man. I was not perceiving through the Spirit. I was not looking on Jesus in the way that God would have me look upon him. I, I judged him as a man. And the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So Paul says, I'm the worst man in the world. 
but he came into the world to save sinners. And the only way that I can know that I'm a sinner is to know the law and to know where I don't measure up to the law. And Paul says, I was horrible. I was absolutely horrible. And he's not saying, I, I used to be the foremost. He said, I am the foremost. It's, it's like what they teach in um, AA, right? I'm, I am an alcoholic. I wasn't an alcoholic. I am still today because that lives in me that I might be an alcoholic. I could, I could fall back into that in a minute. That's the, the whole reason that AA teaches it that way. It's to, to remind us that we walk with a limp. And I think we all, whatever our sins might be, um, we all need that reminder all the time. This is what I am at core because I'm a human being and I'm a fallen human being. And so whatever that is, it's good for us to know that thing. And to say, that's not who I am because of the power of Christ in me. So he says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, if he could save a wretch like me, and I was the worst of the worst, then, then he did it so that other people who were not as bad as me could see and accept that as well. They could see the fullness of the extent of the love of God, that he chose even one who was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent of his son, and turned me into an exponent of his son. He said, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The perfect disciple's response to the gift of Christ.